get started then. Um, we have uh, coming up this next week, I'm asking you to submit the solar observations for the first time um, by the 11th. And all I need is either a copy of your data sheet here in class or a copy, scan, photograph of it submitted on D2L. Either one of those, a minimum of one observation, successful one, where you actually could see a shadow and measure it uh, for credit. And I give you five points towards the project there, just kind of get you started. So I'll give you five points for each of these. Again, one is minimal. If you can get, to, if you have two by now, you're great. If you're getting more than that, you're getting way ahead. So, but at least one of them that makes making sure that you've gotten started on it. Then coming up next week, I got the date correct this time. Homework one is due on September the 18th, I believe, is what I said, because that's what I corrected at least. So will be due coming up right before the exam. And then the exam will be on the 20th covering chapters 1 through 4. So likely as we're going, we'll get, we'll hopefully get through most of 3 today and do 3 and 4 next week and that'll leave us wide open for the exam the following week. But we're not pushed trying to squeeze the exam in next week. And everybody wants the exam a week later anyway, right? Nobody ever wants an exam earlier, right? except, except the person who has like three big projects due that day. Then it's like, I would rather have it do that. The other thing I did just adjust is the review quizzes. There are uh, three of them for this unit. Uh, quiz one, quiz two, quiz for chapters two and three, which we're doing right now, and then quiz for chapter four. Those, quiz one had already closed. I reopened it. They're actually all available now until the exam. So since that's the material that's covered for the exam, you can use those for review up until 8.30 in the morning. So essentially at 8.30 in the morning, they will close and you're done. And remember that you can get extra credit for each of those. They're each 10 questions and you can get whatever your last score on it was, you'll get a tenth of a point per question you got right. So if you got a perfect score on all of them, it's three extra credit points which certainly gives you a couple of extra points towards the exam, which will cover chapters one through four and will be on the 20th as well. So questions assignment-wise. I don't see any. All right. Um, the other thing that for the exam, since someone mentioned it before class, let me go ahead and mention it now. Uh, the question came about the pictures that I may have mentioned it or I may not have. I may have mentioned it in, another, in the other class I'm doing right now. Uh, the pictures, I do pick out several of them. I don't, I'm not going to give you a guarantee on a number. It might be four or five. And I will ask a multiple choice question on the, on the exam. They're extra credit. Essentially, because the exam, if it has 50 points, there'll be 55 points worth. There might be five if there's five of these questions. So if you did perfect, you'd have a chance to get 55 out of 50 on the, on the exam. Uh, five of those would be, five or so of those would be based on these basic questions, based on the pictures, only the ones that we've looked at in class. So if you want to go back, you can go back to Tuesdays and Thursdays during the semester. In this case, we would have looked at two last week, two this week, two next week, and then one the following week. I'm, just, I'm not going to give you a question on the one right before the exam. Uh, but there'd be like seven of them, and I will pick four or five of those to give you questions on. So it wouldn't hurt you just to take a glance at those five pictures. You don't go into it, and you don't have to go into depth, in depth on them. You don't have to scroll down to their description. You can read it. That wouldn't be bad. But you don't need to sit there and click on all the links because you can spend hours going through and exploring everything that they give you. So just as a reminder, that is something that will come up and that's one of the, you know, one of the encouragements to at least look at these and keep an eye on them over the course of the semester. So for today, we have the Western Veil. This is part of the Veil Nebula. I think I'm going to have to dim this again. Did right? Is that a little? Make it any better? A little bit. Okay. Uh, this is the Western Veil. This is actually an example of a nebula out in space. And this is an example of what we call a supernova remnant. This is a part of a supernova remnant. So it is a star that exploded. And now we're seeing the outer layers of those stars, the shock waves of them, spreading out into space. This didn't explode recently. We would have seen the light from this star about 5,000 years ago here on Earth. That's how long this material has been expanding outward into space. And we're still seeing it 
Uh, very intense. Even 5,000 years later, this material is still streaming through the galaxy at very high speeds. And as it interacts with material, gas and dust is just sitting there. It forms a shock wave and you can actually see it illuminated. It's moving that fast that it forms an incredible shock wave that you're able to see this material. So this is a star that exploded and really this is where we all come from. The Big Bang, we'll go over later, created hydrogen and helium and that was it. Anything else? Oxygen, carbon, silicon, iron, gold, anything else that we have here on Earth that makes up our bodies, that makes up the Earth, had to, get, had to be created someplace else. It wasn't made in the Big Bang. And it was created in stars. Stars manufacture the elements. So they build little elements, hydrogen and helium, into much heavier elements. So things like the iron in your blood at some point were created deep within a star that then exploded, sent that material back into space, and after millions of years it would slowly cool off. This is only 5,000 years. Remember that's a small time astronomically speaking. But over millions of years it would cool off. It would become part of another dust cloud that would form another star. And the same process would continue. So those very earliest stars and planets that formed were only hydrogen and helium. You couldn't have formed a planet like Earth very early in the universe. There wasn't enough silicon to make rocks. There wasn't enough iron. There wasn't any oxygen. That, those materials had not yet been formed. So it was through things like this that actually all the material, except for hydrogen that makes up our bodies, that makes up everything here on campus or on the Earth, was made and expelled back out into space. So, questions? No, 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 no. All right. Let's go ahead then, and we had finished up chapter two, as I recall, last time, and we had two chapters for this week. So we were going to look at chapter three, and for the first half, and then we have a lab based on this for the second uh, part. But we're going to talk about uh, planetary motion. Now we mentioned Copernicus last time, and we talked about Galileo and some of his observations. But now what we want to look at is really how we came to an understanding of how the planets moved. And we're going to look at a couple of astronomers in this first section, Tycho and Kepler, listed in the title there. And then we're going to look in the next section, the middle section of this, we're actually going to look at Isaac Newton and what he gave us um, in terms of formalizing everything and giving us the mathematical background that we needed to be able to understand why the planets move the way they do. So what were some of the early ideas? You know, is the universe geocentric? Right? It really seems intuitive. It seems like we are not moving. If you go out there and you watch, you watch the sky, the sun moves around the earth, the moon moves around, the everything seems to be orbiting around the earth. We don't feel like we're sitting there traveling at tens of thousands of miles an hour around the sun, which we are. We're moving at tens of thousands of miles an hour right now as the earth orbits the sun. But it never feels like that. And the ancient Greeks took that and reasoned, not unreasonably, that we were not moving. And one of the big problems with that is that there was one uh, requirement that if the Earth moved, parallax would exist. Stars would appear to shift their position slightly based on where the Earth was. Because at one point the Earth would be over here, six months later, the Earth would have made a big half circle and would have come around and be over here. And those nearby stars are going to shift their position relative to the more distant stars. The Greeks knew that would exist, but they couldn't measure it. We now know that it was just way too small. The angles were incredibly small and it wasn't until the mid-1800s that we actually had telescopes powerful enough to be able to measure the parallax. So one of the later ideas, Copernicus, we looked at last time, gave us the idea of a heliocentric universe and suggested that the Earth was a planet. We knew of five planets before this. This would have been the first new planet added. We're taking the Earth from a special place, being a special object, to being one of now six planets. And that's a big change. That takes a big mindset change to take your Earth from being something special and different than everything else because it sure looks different, right? We're here on Earth. I mean, it's diff different than these little dots of light moving around the sky. 
So it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily obvious that the Earth is going to be a planet. The problems were that he may, he was able to explain things like the motions of the planets much more easily, that retrograde motion, but he was still stuck on circular orbits. He still believed that everything was circular and because of that his observations didn't work any better than those of Ptolemy from long ago. So his observations, since they weren't any better, you had these two models, one you'd been using for 13, 14, 1500 years and one that's brand new. And if they make the same predictions, you're going to stick with what you've been doing for over a thousand years. Why are you going to change to this new, new theory that doesn't give us anything obviously better? So we want to look at how we can find out, you know, that how we found out that Copernicus was correct. And one of the astronomers who did that was Tycho Brahe, who made observations of, and in fact he was the last great naked eye observer, pre-telescope. So we've already talked about Galileo and the telescope, but Galileo and his telescope observations were 1609, 1610. Tycho died in 1601. So he died before the telescope existed. But he was the greatest observer up to his time, the most accurate observations. He could measure positions of stars and planets to about one thirtieth the diameter of the full moon. Without a telescope, without anything else, he could measure positions that accurately. So you go look at the full moon, imagine cutting it into 30 little pieces and you could identify how, where exactly a star was in space that accurately. That's really good. Without a telescope, without any other kind of instrumentation, no photography, right? Photography is not till the 1800s. We don't have photographs to take and look at these images. All he can do is watch it with his eye and he could measure things that precisely. And he did this for decades. So not just a year's worth of data, but decades worth of data. And he found one big thing is that he did not feel that his observations fit with the geocentric model. He didn't have all the details yet. We'll see that coming up in a little bit. But he did not like the geocentric model because he thought his observations weren't quite fitting with that. One of the things that he noticed was that the stars had to be really far away and things like supernovae. Right? We just saw an image of a supernova remnant, the leftover of it. But when you'd see an actual supernova, a bright star in the sky, that used to be thought of as something in our atmosphere because the heavens couldn't change. So if you saw a supernova, that was just an atmospheric effect. You know, clouds, all that kind of stuff. You had some bright object. It was in our atmosphere. It was part of the Earth. He measured them and found out they didn't have any parallax either. Well, if something's in our atmosphere, it's close to us. And if you measure it at different locations, you should be able to see it shift relative to the stars. And it didn't. So he didn't like the geocentric theory for that reason. He didn't like the heliocentric theory either though. Because he couldn't measure parallax of the stars. And he was, he was the most accurate observer to the time. Now we know now that he just didn't have the equipment to be able to, to observe that. But it was but he didn't like that for that. So he came up with his own model of the universe. It was kind of a hybrid between the two. It will look a little strange, but it actually works and it works for predicting things. What he did was put the Earth at the center, the Moon and the Sun orbited around the Earth, but based on his stuff he said all the planets orbited around the Sun. So Copernicus was right and wrong. He was right in that all the planets orbited the sun, but he was wrong in that the Earth was different. The Earth is still the center. It can't be moving because I can't me measure parallax. And you'd have those two orbiting the Earth and you'd have planets orbiting the sun. It might look a little silly to us now because like gravity, how does this work with gravity? We didn't understand. Newton is still not here yet. Newton is still 100, 100 years, over 100 years away. So we don't have the ideas of Newton to understand gravity yet. So it was just another model and it worked. You could do the models, you could do the calculations, and you could predict things just as accurately here as you could with either Tycho's model or with Copernicus's model. So there were three models that you could be using. Now if you remember Galileo shortly after this kicked out one of them. He proved that Ptolemy was wrong. 
Ptolemy's model, geocentric. Once he observed the phases of Venus, we knew that that was wrong. But there were still two competing models at the time. So even when Galileo found that, he didn't, he could prove that by seeing Venus the way he did, that Venus had to orbit the sun. But his model would not, his observation did not rule out this kind of model. Again, it does look strange to us because we tend to think of gravity and why do we have sun orbiting Earth and all the planets orbiting the sun. But it explained the observations that were known at the time. Now, we came a little bit better with the, uh, an assistant that was hired by Tycho, Johannes Kepler. And he was a mathematician. He went through and analyzed all this data, these decades worth of observations of the planets that Tycho had made. And he was able to explain planetary motion. He made that other big step that we needed. Copernicus kicked the Earth out of the center and said the sun was at the center. The other thing that uh, Aristotle had given us was that everything moved in circles and everything moved at uniform speeds. Kepler was able to get, explain the planetary motion by abandoning these last two, by getting rid of these. So that planets did not move in circles, planets did not move at uniform speeds. If you get rid of those two, then you can explain planetary motion. And he gave us three laws of planetary motion that explain how things move within the solar system. Newton was able to take these and then apply them to the rest of the universe. And that's what I'm going to have you look at a little bit as go through these a little bit in the lab section uh, in a little bit. So the first law of planetary motion said that instead of being circles, the orbits of the planets are ellipses. They are elliptical. An ellipse is just a squashed circle. You can think of it as a squashed circle. So if you had a perfect circle, right? we know what that would look like. An ellipse would look something like this. It's that circle, but you've squished it down. So it's got one side that's bigger, one axis that's bigger, one axis that is much smaller. The other thing he said is that the sun was located not at the center, which would be the very middle of it, just like it would be for a circle. But the sun was located at what we call a focus of the ellipse. An ellipse has two foci, one on either side on this longer axis. So the sun is located at one of those. There's nothing at the other one. So this is what Kepler said things were like in the solar system. So some of the parts there, I mentioned center, focus here. Uh, then there's a major axis, which is the long one and a minor axis, which is the smaller one. So this is what Kepler then redefined things. Instead of being a circle, if you had a circle, the two foci, as you stretch, as this becomes closer to a circle, the foci get closer together and eventually become a point at the center. So a circle is really just a special version of an ellipse, where the two foci are together. So an ellipse is a circle is an ellipse, but it's a very special kind. So in general, planets do not follow circular orbits. They follow elliptical orbits around the sun. The other terminology is what we call the eccentricity of the ellipse, which tells us how squashed it is. If you have that eccentricity value of exactly 0, that's a circle. So 0 eccentricity is a circular orbit. If you can get it a very flattened ellipse, you can go 0.9999999999. You can keep adding nines there. If you hit one, it changes form into a parabola. It actually is no longer a bound orbit. It would come in, something could come in, go out. Um, so if you actually hit one, it becomes a parabola. And if it goes greater than one, it becomes a hyperbola. Those are all possible orbits. But if something just comes in once and goes away, we're not going to see it. Right? Comet might come in once, we see it, and it actually goes out. Many comets do have orbits like that. But what Kepler was giving us is that based on the observations, this was what the solar system actually looked like. The sun is here off-centered, and the planet would then move around it. So that's his first law. His first law got rid of the idea of circular orbits. His second law got rid of the idea of uniform speeds. Now, what his second law actually said, this is what he stated, was that a line joining the planet and the sun sweeps out equal areas and equal intervals of time. That's exactly what he found. When he plotted out these orbits 
and he would say that each of the time periods here is one month, one month, and one month, and you shade it in that area between a line connecting the planet and the sun, that this area, when he calculated it, was the same as this area, which was the same as this area. And that's what he found. What does it really mean? It means that the planet isn't moving at a uniform speed. All right, it takes a lot shorter amount of t- it takes a lot shorter time. It goes a lot faster here close to the sun and it moves a lot slower when it's further away. So we know that the planet is change- changing speed. So when it's close to the sun, we call that perihelion. Helio, helios meaning the sun, peri is meaning it's its closest approach. So perihelion is the closest approach to the sun. That's when a planet is moving at its fastest. At aphelion, way over on the other side, would be when the planet is moving slowest. So planets move faster when they're closer to the sun, slower when they're further away. The Earth does this. Now the Earth's orbit is pretty close to being a circle as are all of the other planets. They're not that different. If they'd been really different, we would have noticed it long ago. It took this long because the orbits are so close to being circular. If I took a projection here and I projected a nice perfect circle and I put Mercury's orbit on top of it, you'd see a little bit of a deviation, but not much. Mercury is by far the most eccentric orbit, the most squashed of the planets. Of the eight planets, it's by far the most. So you would barely be able to see some differences there if we did it from Mars, the Earth. You would not be able to notice the difference between a circle and the ellipse that it actually travels in the circle. It was only because of Tycho's really accurate observations that he was able to do this. So he was able to now overthrow two things. Get rid of the fact that the planets move in circles. Get rid of the fact that the planets move at constant speeds. Copernicus already got rid of the idea that the Earth was at the center. So now we've gotten rid of all of the old ideas of Aristotle in terms of planetary motion. And we can now predict things much more accurately. Remember, Copernicus could not predict accurately because he didn't, he still used circles. When we use ellipses, now we can predict things very precisely. So his first two laws he came up with quickly. His third law took him a little bit more time. Uh, This is the more mathematical of the laws. And what he found, uh, given in words here, is that the square of the orbital period is directly proportional to the cube of its semi-major axis. Major axis is that long axis, semi-major axis is just half of that. If you want to write it mathematically, you can write it a lot simpler as p squared, the orbital period, to the second power, is equal to the semi-major axis, which is also its average distance from the sun, cubed. So how well does this work out? Well, to just a couple of decimal places, Mercury, 0.39 for the average distance in astronomical units. The period in years is 0.24. If you take 0.39 and cube it, divide it by 0.24 squared, you get 1.02. Pretty close to 1. Do the same thing for Venus, you get 0.98. I think you see that there's a pattern there. This is when you actually cube one, divide it by the square, you get something very close to one. If you measure them more accurately, take out more decimal places here, they actually get even closer to one. So most of the deviations you see there are just due to rounding. So there's a very distinct pattern relationship between how far a planet is from the sun and how fast it's moving. But not just that more distant planets move more slowly, which might make sense to us, but there's a very distinct pattern that can be predicted. Isaac Newton actually could give us this. He could use his theory of gravitation and he could calculate Kepler's third law that it had to occur. Kepler didn't find it that way. He looked at all these numbers. He had this table of numbers. Ignore the last column. He'd found distances. He'd found found periods based on observations. He did not do these last three. Obviously, because they were not discovered yet, but he knew the other ones and he found that they were all pretty close. But he probably had to try other things. He might have had to try to square one and square the other and square one in cube and third powers, fourth powers, until he came on something that gave him a distinct pattern. So, not that he just decided, oh, this is going to work, this might work, and he tried it. He probably tried all sorts of different calculations looking for the pattern that he eventually found to give us his third law. 
This is important when Newton comes along because with Newton, this then tells us a way to measure the masses of the planets. Newton takes this law, p squared equals a cubed, and generalizes it not just to something going around the sun, but to any objects orbiting anywhere. Newton can take Kepler's laws and apply them not just to the solar system, to other stars, to other galaxies, anywhere in the universe. So Kepler's laws as written just say solar system. Newton was able to take them and apply them to the rest of the universe. All right, so what do these mean? Why were they so important? Mainly because they got rid of I mean, for, for over a thousand years we had been focused on three things, right? The Earth was at the center, that's not part of this, but we've been really been focused on circular orbits and uniform motion. That was every model from, well, even before Ptolemy, but every model since then, even the models that came later that were adapted, everything still used circles, 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 circles. Now maybe you liked them too because it's a lot easier to do calculations with a circle where everything's nice and uniform, makes the calculations a lot easier. Today, right, you throw the, th- throw the equations into a computer and let it do the computing for you, you couldn't do that. So that might be one of the other reasons since they were so close and there was no reason to that people stuck with circles. But he did have no physical basis. He could tell you that planets move faster when they're closer to the sun and slower when they're further away. Why? I don't know. Don't have Newton's gravity yet. But if you talk about gravity, it kind of makes sense. You're closer to the object, it's going to pull you faster, and you're going to accelerate more. But without that, he didn't know. He just said, this is what is happening. So Newton is the one who's going to be able to take, his, take all of this information and take his law of gravity and find out that Kepler's laws are just a natural consequence of the law of gravity. So Newton was able to then take them, say, yep, they work here in the solar system, and they work every place. So not only orbits of the planets are ellipses, but the, any orbits. And in fact, orbits can be circular, they can be elliptical, or they can be, as I mentioned, parabolas or hyperbolas. Not everything is bound together. Some things do escape, as comets would be one example here in the solar system. So they will apply to everything. He could also say not only do planets move faster when they're closer to another object, but so do stars. If two stars are closer together, they move faster. If they're further apart, they move, fur- they move slower. A star is going around the galaxies. Closer together, closer to the center, they're going to move faster. Further away, they're going to move slower. There's some problems with that, but that doesn't have anything to do with, do with Newton as far as we know. But we'll come back to that later on. So really what it meant is Kepler gave us this, these empirical laws based just on his observations. And Newton was then able to derive them, prove them, say that hey, these are the way things actually should be. So finishing up here, um, we talked about Tycho and his observations. Kepler took those to come up with three laws of planetary motion. And then the, really the understanding had to wait for Newton and gravity to understand why the orbits were elliptical, why the orbits were um, why planets move faster when they're closer to the sun, and so on. All right, so first section there. No questions. Okay. All right, so now we're going to look at Newton and try to get that understanding of gravity. Um, So we can start off going back with one of the things that Galileo gave us. Galileo did some of the earlier uh, measurements. Is this going to work for me? Okay. I'm going to pause that for a second the audio is okay. Galileo did study uh, motion as well. He didn't just look at things with the telescope. Uh, he did uh, studies of motion as well. Balls rolling down planes, balls falling at the same rate. And one of the things that he found is that objects fall at the same rate in a gravitational field. So it doesn't matter what the mass of the objects are, they fall at exactly the same rate. Let me do our Grab a piece of paper here. Do the little example. I'll show you the video too. But but two objects, even if they're different weights, are going to fall at the same rate. So if you take the video is going to show you a hammer and a feather, and if you drop them at the same time, what Galileo said is they're going to hit the ground at the same time. So heavier object, my little case here, plus the piece of paper. If I drop them, they hit the ground at the same time, right? 
No. Why not? Yeah. They got the atmosphere. But what I can do is I can take this piece of paper. I didn't change its mass, right? I just crumpled it up. So now the atmosphere isn't affecting it as much. And if I drop them now, they hit at the same time. So everything will hit. It won't matter how heavy. The only difference here on Earth is that, yeah, we got this atmosphere that interferes with things. But if we don't, don't have that, and one place we can go, or where we have gone, where there is no atmosphere, is the moon. So this experiment was actually done on the moon uh, back at Apollo 15. So I'm going to play this little video clip here. It'll run about a minute or so. Let me see if we have... So he's got a hammer in one hand, feather in the other. you can see, hopefully you see two things there. They did hit at the same time, just like my two objects here. You could see the hammer and the feather would hit at the same time. But did you also notice how slow the hammer fell? If you drop a hammer here on Earth, it falls a lot faster than that. The gravity is a lot less on the moon, about one-sixth. So it's going to fall a lot slower. So not only are things falling at the same time, but the amount of gravity would matter. If you could somehow stand on Jupiter and do the same thing, that hammer would fall a lot faster than you're used to. So we get used to our gravity and how fast things fall, but the rate at which it falls depends on the object you're looking at. So if you did the experiment on Mars, it would be something in between. Mars has a little more gravity than the moon, but less than the Earth. So it would depend on what object you did this experiment on as well. But no matter what you do, where you are, ignoring atmospheric effects, the two objects, no matter what they are, will hit at the same time. That's one of the things that Galileo came up, came up with. All right, so what does that mean? I want to go over a couple of terms here that you may hear. Uh, we talk about velocity and acceleration. You might have talked about it in another science class or a math class what a vector is. Vectors just have a magnitude and a direction. When we talk about things like velocity, a velocity has some speed component to it. But it also has to have a direction. So you can talk about how fast things are going. Right? Your speed on the highway, you know, what, 70 miles an hour. You're traveling 70 miles per hour. That's your speed. That's not your velocity. Your velocity would depend what direction you're traveling. So you can travel at different velocities even if you're at the same speed. If you've got cars going on the highway, you've got cars going 70 miles an hour this way, and you've got cars going 70 miles an hour that way. Say 70 miles an hour east, 70 miles an hour west. They're traveling at the same speed, but they're traveling at different velocities because the direction is different. Now why this is important is because of when accelerations occur. And acceleration occurs whenever a velocity changes. So you can do that in three ways. We think of acceleration, right? you're in the car, you hit the gas pedal and you accelerate, you go faster. So speeding up, that is one method of acceleration. However, physically, when you hit the brake, you're accelerating. It's a special case we call deceleration. Right? You can sometimes say deceleration, but it is an acceleration. Acceleration doesn't mean you have to go slower, it just means your velocity is changing. So hitting the brake is also accelerating. Negative acceleration, you're slowing down, but you're going from a higher speed to a lower speed. You might not be changing your direction, but you're changing the speed component. You can also accelerate when you change direction. So if you're traveling uh, around a curve on a highway, right, going on a nice tight curve, and you keep going, at this, you have your cruise control on, you're going at the same speed, you're accelerating. 
Your speed might not be changing. You might be going 70 miles an hour the whole way around that curve, but your direction is changing, so you are still accelerating. And you'll feel a force because of that, especially if you do it on a real tight curve and you go too fast, right? You feel yourself getting shoved around because you are accelerating. There is a force existing, force created when there is an acceleration. So you're going to be, so you can accelerate in any of these three cases. So we're going to mention. Uh, acceleration, I just wanted to kind of qualify that when I say acceleration, it can mean all sorts of things. It can mean slowing up, it can mean speeding down, it can mean changing direction. So the Earth orbiting around the Sun. Let's go back to uh, Ptolemy and Copernicus and say it's a circle. The Earth is accelerating. Ignore the fact that it does change speed. We know that it does change a little bit, but just because it's changing its direction, it is constantly accelerating. The space station orbiting around the Earth is constantly accelerating as it orbits around the Earth. Not because its speed is changing, but because its direction of motion is changing. And that all has to come back to do with gravity. So let's look at Isaac Newton here. Um, from 1643 to 1727. So he came up with uh, the law of gravity. He gave us three laws of motion that we'll look at. If you ever take calculus or had to take calculus, you got him to blame. He's the one who had to come up with it. He actually had to develop that new mathematics in order to solve some of the problems he was doing. The math that existed, geometry, algebra, wasn't sufficient to be able to solve the problems that he wanted to solve. So mathematics has had to develop as well over the centuries in order to be able to solve the problems we want to solve. We can't solve gravity based on just geometry or just algebra. We can make some approximations, but we can't really solve it directly. So calculus is one of the things he developed that we're not going to into in the, in the class. Um, yay, right? Uh, but he did give us three laws of motion that we're going to look at and a universal law of gravitation. They're all wrong, but they work. Meaning that they're not the correct understandings. And if we get a chance to talk about um, Einstein later, we can see how Einstein modified these, some of these things. But they work for everything in everyday, almost everything in everyday uh, life. So let's look at his laws of motion. His first law of motion is the idea of inertia, sometimes called the law of inertia. The statement of it says that an object at rest or in a state of uniform motion will continue that motion unless it's acted upon by an outside force. So if something is sitting at rest, it's going to stay at rest. If something is moving in a straight line at a constant speed, it's going to keep doing that forever until some outside force acts upon it. Now just remember, there is an outside force sitting around here, friction, atmosphere. So if you roll a ball, it'll go pretty well. But if I try to slide a block across the floor, it's not going to go forever, right? But there's friction between the floor. There is a force acting on it that is slowing it down. If there was not, air hockey table, take the little puck, give it a shove. It's going to keep going until it hits the wall, hits the other side. It's not going to stop. It's going to go at the same speed because you've removed friction, or at least the vast majority of the friction. So if you could do that on the floor, right, a nicely waxed floor, ever actually accidentally stepped on a nicely waxed floor and you can't walk. You will actually skid out from under it because there is no friction. Friction is required for you to be able to walk. So some example of this. I do riding in a car, common everyday one for uh, most people. If you are um, in a car traveling down the road in a straight line, constant speed, and somebody jams on their brakes in front of you and so do you, what happens? You lunge forward, right? You didn't plan on that. But you were, you were moving forward, your car stopped, you didn't want to stop, that's what Newton's telling us. So you're going to lunge forward until something stops you. Seatbelt, airbag, windshield, you know, whatever, whatever you hit, something's going to eventually stop you. But, you know, that, but you're going to keep moving in a straight line. So you wanted to keep moving, but the car stopped. So it needs some other uh, external force to stop you now. So you wanted to keep moving. The opposite of it, to look at it the other way, if you're sitting still, uh, some of the roller coasters do this, those ones that like to launch you out at really high speeds, what happens? Right? You're shoved, you're pushed way back. 
A rocket launch would be another one, but more people have ridden roller coasters like that than they've probably traveled in a rocket. So, or like a high-speed jet aircraft or something that would really get high, high G-forces pushing you back. But you get shoved back. Why? You were sitting still. The car, the car, the thing gets accelerated and what? You wanted to stay still. So until it pushes you forward, you're going to want to stay back. So you feel yourself getting pushed back. It's all due to inertia that things don't want to change their motion. What this also means is that if you see anything that is not at rest or not in a state of uniform motion, and that should be in a straight, that should imply straight line, I should, should put that in there, that there's a force acting. So if you see anything moving in a circle, the moon, the earth, anything orbiting, there has to be a force acting because they're not obeying Newton's first law. The moon is not staying at rest, it's moving, and it's not in a state of uniform motion because it's constantly being accelerated, it's constantly changing its velocity. That means there has to be a force acting on it. Newton's second law, given as the equation, that's the equation if you want it the simple way. If you want to write it out in words, you can write it out this way. Uh, F equals ma, force is equal to mass times acceleration. You can also rewrite that as the acceleration of a body is proportional uh, to and in the same direction as the net force acting on it and inversely proportional to the mass of the object. It's the same, same thing. F equals ma is usually an easier way to keep track of it because it's a little bit simpler. But if equations throw you, you can look at it in terms of text as well. This means that if we're looking at different objects, the amount of acceleration can depend on, for example, how big the object is. So the example I give you there, you're driving down the road and your car breaks down, stops right in the middle of the road. Well, if you've got a little car, you can get out, put it in neutral, push it, push it off the road, right? You can get it moving because it's a small mass. If you drive an 18-wheeler and it's fully loaded, you're not going to be able to budget. Even if it's on a nice straight, if it's downhill, maybe you can push it downhill, but no. Say it's on a nice straight level area, you can't, you're not going to budget. You can push with the same amount of force, but the difference is the mass. So the accelerations are going to be much smaller. Technically, if there were no friction, maybe you could get it moving. But if there's friction, you're not going to be able to actually get the truck moving at all. But even if you could, it's going to move a lot less, a lot slower than you're going to be able to move a little car. So a little car, you can move easily. Big car, real big car, you might need, or SUV, you might need another person to help you. A bigger truck, you're going to need a lot to be able to move that because the mass has changed. So the acceleration, how fast it's going to be able to change its velocity, is going to be much slower. So that's Newton's second law. His third law, uh, his third law is the action-reaction. So I think we've probably heard of this before. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So how do we launch a rocket into space? We use Newton's third law. You've ever seen the size of a rocket? Those things are gigantic. If you ever looked at the Saturn V's that took the astronauts to the moon, they're in this little tiny capsule up here. The rest of this is fuel. So you ignite the fuel, well that doesn't do much unless you direct it out. You send, the, you send the fuel out, the burning fuel out one direction as gases at very high speeds and that pushes the rocket up in the other direction. And you constantly do that. It takes long. If you've ever watched a rocket launch, I should pull up one of the videos one of the times, but I don't want to dig for it right now. But if you watch it, that rocket launches so slowly when it starts. I mean, you watch the rocket. It doesn't just take off into space. It goes very slowly. I mean, you can watch it crawling, and it slowly accelerates. So that's what you're doing is you're throwing material out one side, and it's coming out the other. So anything like that you can use. Anything where you're going in one direction, there's always an equal and opposite force. If we push on something, it's pushing back on you with an equal and opposite force. The floor is pushing on me right now. Right, I'm pushing on the floor. The floor pushes back on me so that the forces are balanced. If the floor doesn't push back on me enough, then I fall through the floor. Because I'm pushing down on it more than it's pushing up, we'd collapse. Chairs would do the same thing, right? If you get a rickety old chair and you sit on it, it can't push up at you hard enough. It can't exert an equal and opposite force, so what happens? You end up sitting on the ground. The chair breaks on, breaks on you. That's the same kind of thing. There are always those pairs of forces and they're always equal and opposite. 
Now the other thing that Newton gave us was the law of gravitation. So again, the first one up there is in text. So the gravitational attraction of any two bodies is proportional to the product of their masses, so it depends on the masses of the two objects, and inversely proportional to the distance between them squared. In equation form, it's written right there. If you want it in text, it's out there. What does it mean that it's universal? It means that it applies to any two objects in the universe with mass. The Earth pulls on the Moon, the Moon pulls on the Earth. You pull on the Earth, the Earth pulls on you. And those forces are exactly the same. If you look at this calculation, the distance is the distance between the two objects. Let's look at the Earth and the Moon. So the force is the force we're looking for. G is just a constant. So it's just some number, we don't need to worry about that. But this would be the mass of the Earth and the mass of the Moon. You'd multiply those two together and you divide it by the distance between them squared. Well, if I multiply the mass of the Earth by the mass of the Moon or the mass of the Moon by the mass of the Earth, does it change the number? 2 times 3 and 3 times 2, they're exactly the same. So the force with which the Moon pulls on the Earth is exactly the same with which the force with which the Earth pulls on the Moon. So why does the Moon orbit the Earth and not the other way around? What's different about them? Anyone? Yeah? Uh, the Earth is a lot bigger. The Earth is a lot more massive. Remember what the acceleration did. Go back to Newton's second law. F equals ma. Large mass, little acceleration. So if I drop something, when I was dropping stuff here, when I dropped this, right, we say the Earth pulls it down, it pulled the Earth up too. However, that's so much less massive than the Earth that the minuscule billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a nanometer that the Earth moved up is not going to be measurable. But technically the Earth does move up a little bit too. And you could do the calculation, you could do a calculation to figure out how much it moved. It would be some minuscule number that you'd never be able to measure, but it's there. When you get bigger, more massive objects, you can actually start to see that. So, even though the forces are exactly the same, the accelerations can be different. So, if we send a spacecraft out to a planet, we can use this. We can have that the planet will accelerate the spacecraft. It will take some of the energy from that the planet. Well, little tiny spacecraft big giant planet. Makes a big difference for the craft, the planet doesn't notice it's missing. Okay, so let's look at some examples here. Um, so what can you do, what happens to the gravitational force if we make some changes? So if we double the mass of one of the objects, if we made them Earth magically somehow, you know, snap my fingers, all of a sudden the Earth is twice as massive as it was. Remember how the force worked. It depends on the product of the masses. So if this one is now two times as big, the force is two times as big. Force is now twice as big. If you did this for both objects, if you doubled the mass of the Earth and the mass of the Moon at the same time, now the force is two times two, because we doubled both of them, or four times bigger than it was before. What else did I give? Triple the distance between the objects. If we take the Earth, Moon and move it a lot further away, three times further away, the force, going back to the equation here, okay, we're not touching the masses now, but we made this three times bigger. Three squared, three times three is nine. So it's going to be one ninth. So if you move the moon for three times further away, the gravitational force is going to be one ninth as much. And the last one I gave, if you took four times closer together, you're now making this one fourth. 4 squared, or 1 fourth squared would be 1 sixteenth, but that 1 sixteenth is down in the denominator, so it would actually be 16 times bigger. If you could bring things closer together. The gr in other words, what I'm trying to get across with these is that if you change the distance, it makes a much bigger effect than changing the mass. The distance will make a much bigger change than changing the mass of the objects will. So those are some examples you can do using the equation. And then Newton took Kepler's third law and he could actually calculate it. And what he found, Kepler gave us p squared equals a cubed. Newton revised this just a little bit. Actually there's a little more to it, there's some constants in there that I'm not worrying about for you. But p squared 
times the sum of the two masses of the objects, so if you're looking at the Earth going around the Sun, that would be the mass of the Sun and the mass of the Earth, is equal to A cubed. So the only difference he added in, mainly, is the masses. Now for the Sun and the planets, the Sun is so much more massive than the planets that if you add, if you take the mass of the Sun and you add the Earth in, you know, it's like taking a piece of dust off of you and changing your mass. Your mass didn't change. You could throw the whole Earth into the Sun and that's how much the, your Sun's mass would change. Essentially nothing. You wouldn't notice it. So really it just depends on the mass of the Sun, which Kepler would have been using the way his would have worked out. That would have been one mass of the Sun. So it would, that's why the, solar, the mass doesn't appear in Kepler's. But what it does allow us to do is to measure the mass, not just of objects in the solar system, but anywhere in the, anywhere in the universe. As long as things are orbiting each other. So a moon orbiting around a planet, we can now orbit the, uh, determine the mass of that planet. A planet orbiting around a star, we can determine the mass of that star. A star orbiting around the galaxy, we can determine the mass of the galaxy. Galaxies orbiting around each other, we can still use this to determine the mass of the galaxy, the mass of those, of those galaxies. It's something that's not easy to determine otherwise. How massive is a star? Well, it's big, but how big is it? Now we can actually have a way to be able to determine those masses. All right, so summarizing this one. Okay. Um, all objects are going to fall at the same rate in a gravitational field regardless of mass. I did the little example for you and showed you the video clip. And we talked about Newton's three laws of motion and law of universal gravitation. And let me see, what did I have? I'm just going to go over, because I know I ask about these and I've talked about them. I'm just going to go over the very first screen here and then I'll come back and I'll finish this up on Tuesday so we have time to work on the lab. But I actually mentioned, I've mentioned these before briefly in the previous one, but I just wanted to kind of mention them. Some of the definitions for orbits, because I will ask you things about, talk about perihelion and aphelion in the lab. Perihelion and aphelion apply to things orbiting the sun. You might just talk about satellites going around the Earth. Then it's perigee and apogee. So G for geo for the Earth, helion for helios for the Sun. Um, if, you, if you read anything about the uh, Juno craft that's orbiting Jupiter, it'll talk about perigove when it's closest to Jupiter. So the actual the ending of that term will change depending on the object that you're looking at. Uh, but what, just again, the two are, Perihelion is the closest time, when we are closest to the Sun. Aphelion is when the object is furthest away. So aphelion would be furthest away from the Sun. Apogee would be furthest away from the Earth. Apogee would be furthest away from Jupiter if you're something orbiting Jupiter. And that's what we looked at with the motion. So what Kepler told us and Newton was that when an object is closer, it's moving a lot faster. When an object is further away, it's moving a lot slower. So I just wanted to review that just because I knew that was on the first slide here. And then I'll actually come through and we'll talk about orbits next time as we finish up this and then go on to chapter four for next week. So questions? Alrighty, I don't see anything. So what I'm going to give you, let me stop 